All right, you guys, before we get into today's episode, we are coming to you with some really exciting news. So Tara and I submitted a panel to South by Southwest. If you guys have heard of that, you know it's a very big deal. And we made it to the next step. So we're coming at you for help, you guys. Yes, we need your help. We are officially in the panel picker voting stage. So in order for us to move on to the next step, our community needs to go and vote for us. And we know there's one thing we love about the discos is you guys show up for us. We are hoping you will show up for us once again and go and vote for us. We are going to include a link in our show notes where you're able to click on and go vote. Super simple and we will love you forever. We will love you forever. When we started Discover Ag, you know, Tara and I did this because we want agriculture and food and farming and all these things that we are so passionate about. And we know the things that you guys are passionate about. We want it front and center. We want it on big stages um, and we want it from voices within agriculture. You know, we are, I don't know if tired is the right word, but we just, we see so many people, you know, lending their voice to agriculture and speaking for agriculture and food. Um, and oftentimes it's, you know, not from within the industry. And we just feel so strongly and so passionate that, you know, food needs to be on the main stage and it needs to be talked about by people within it who understand it. And so we're just, I'm like beside myself that we even got this email and we made it this far in the process because it would be, I mean, how awesome you guys would it be to have, you know, food conversations hosted by Tara and I and led, you know, from, from the discover perspective on the stage at South by Southwest, it would just, it'd be so awesome. So I don't, I don't know how we can ask you plead to you guys to um, please hit that link in the show notes to vote for us before, even before you listen to today's episode, there's one thing you can do for us today. You guys, it would be really to go cast that vote and help us make it to, I don't know if there's another stage or the final stage or whatever it is, but help us get to wherever we need to go for this. Yes. And the deadline will be quickly approaching. So please don't wait around. Hit that link and vote for our Discover Ag panel at South by Southwest. Yeah, I think it closes the 20th. So if you're listening to this before August 20th, please hit that link. Um, And without further ado, you guys, we'll get into today's episode. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Discover Act, brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara Vanderdeusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And we are doing today what we do every single week. Together, we bring you our professional farming opinions on some really great topics that are trending in the ag and food space so that you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. So I have to tell you, I did something this week that I have not done in, I think, four to five years. Any oh guesses? my gosh, I thought you were going to say four to five months. And so I was like, mm, get a massage, get a facial, because you're usually pretty good about that. But four to five years has me a little thrown, if I'm not going to lie. I changed the photos on my home screen and my oh lock screen. Oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it insane? I feel like when we used to do Rule Rooted, that was, wasn't that one of the opening games we'd play? And it was so fun. We'd go around the room and tell what our screen like savers were. And yours was the most boring one. And you would plan this game. And I'd be like, why do we play this game? I change mine all the time. So we're completely different. I uh, It was an icebreaker. So for anyone tuning in that has like business settings or any events like that where you need a fun icebreaker, 
have people talk about what's on their home screen or lock screen because it is really fun to see. I do think it like showcases personalities. Although you said my screen was boring, so I don't know if they're telling me that means my first. It, it wasn't boring, but I thought it it's was- a beautiful. It was always a beautiful photo. It just always was the same. So it wasn't. You weren't uh, like I just pretty much could predict what you were going to say during the icebreaker because it was the same. So I went from. You're exactly right. It always stayed the same. So I went from just a photo of Jack's holding. Um, or Tad holding Jacks when he was a baby to now a family photo. So I'm like officially welcome Rue <laughs> into my phone screen. He is a part of the family now. And then I thought you would like this. I changed my uh, lock screen on the outer side. I don't know why, but I think this is one reason why I've never changed it because I'm like very self-conscious about what everyone can see on your screen. And so you're right. Like my old one was just a photo of like a windmill, like the Nebraska, like a Nebraska scenery. And I didn't get too wild. I switched it to a sheep trail scenery. But you and I have been, I know you and I have been talking a lot about our goals for this podcast and like building out um, really big visions and dreams we have. And I'm kind of like in that manifesting era where I just, I don't know. I think where your energy, you put your energy is where things happen, right? Like energy flows where attention go or energy flows where attention goes, right? And so I thought... Why not put, you know, Montana sheep trail, discover ag, like front and center on my phone every single time. So I included it with like a little quote. I'm like one of those quote girls, which I was listening to a podcast where they're making fun of girls that have quotes on their phone screens. They're like, it means they went through something. Yeah, it means they're going through something, which I'm like, maybe that's true. Maybe I'm going through something. But I don't know. I'm so thrown. That's what made me think of it when I just said this for the opening of the podcast is every time I look at my phone right now, I'm a little thrown because it is so fresh and different than what I've always had. Um, that We actually have a meeting later today kind of going over our goals. So I am very much in that headspace too. And I actually listened to Jesse Jarvis of the West, Leaders of the West podcast, where she went through goal setting. Highly, I'm going to share it to my stories today. Highly, highly recommend it. It's really good. She did a teaser on her Instagram stories of how she goal sets. And I was like, ooh, I need to go you listen to You have to listen to it. It makes me very curious about what The she whole did. time I was listening, I was like, Natalie would love this. I was having this conversation with a girlfriend the other day because you know my energy is very non-cluttered, very clean. I purge all the time. I donate all the time. Like I have, I am at the our local uh, like thrift store in our little town. Uh, once a month, I drop off a box. Like I purge all the time, and I was like, man, I should hold on to some of this stuff because one day is going to roll around later on and later in life when I'm going to be like. Where did all my cool stuff go? I I donated it all. <laughs> I need it back. I want it back. I have been going through a purge phase of the, the the less stuff you have, the less there is to put away. And so I have been purging. Like remember, la- like two weeks ago when the girls were gone, I did a massive closet cleanout, and I literally didn't even. I just went in with like no heart at all, and just was like, "Don't wear it. Get rid of it." Um, but I will say, my mom saves everything. She's not like hoarder status. She's like organized hoarder status that she saves a lot like baby clothes. So like I have so many photos of the girls and clothes I wore. She gives clothes to my sister-in-laws of my brothers. Like it's actually really sentimental and cute. I think if I wasn't a sentimental person, I would be like, mom, I don't care, but I'm pretty like, I like old stuff. I like hand-me-down stuff. Um, and so she, it does make me think like take pause and save a few things for your kids, your grandkids later in life. I did do a purge on the kids' playroom as well, which there is no feeling as a mother of purging the kids' playroom. I mean, 
talk about the like dopamine hit you get from that. But I did hold on to and save um, like some of the t-shirts the kids had made for like Tad that say like Kavork, like that's my big brother. Like I saved some of those more sentimental items because I was like thinking the same thing you said. Like it'd be fun to give these to the boys eventually. I know they're going to want everything, but I have to have something to give them or they're going to be like, you were a cold. (laughs) Speaking of the girls and stuff, how was uh, homeschooling? How much time do we have? How? (laughs) Well... (laughs) We, Not a lot, we, but we have some. We are officially four hours into homeschooling, and I almost started crying when I was thinking lunch. I was like, I made a mistake. I don't know what I'm doing. But no, we had, okay, I had you're, massive panic. You're like spreading the main. <laughs> you're like, Dan walks He was. He like talked crying. to me, and I was like, don't talk to me right now. I just like need a minute. No, so last night, I we got home from vacation last night at eight o'clock at night, and I was like, okay, like need to prep for homeschool tomorrow. And, um, I went to log into the girl's email and Google was like, we suspected suspicious activity and shut down your two Google, Google accounts, which was where all of the girls' like assignments got sent from their teachers, their homeschool teachers. And so I was in massive panic at like nine o'clock at night. And then I couldn't access their Blackboard. It was like one of those like stupid internet technique like technical things that I was like, I don't know what to do. So this morning we just winged it. And then today when I opened up the computer, it was like, welcome to your first day of class. Here's all your assignments. And I was like, oh, so apparently going in prepared last night was a mistake. Should have just woke up this morning and done it. Um, But it was even today. Just now I hit print on my printer to print all the pages we kind of need. And then like came here and I can like still hear it printing. So I'm a little overwhelmed, I guess, is the moral of the story. But I will try and channel you more comforting vibes for the rest of the week. But I do. I mean, I hate to say it, but I was thinking, Tara, you should have given yourself like more than an hour, zero hours. Yes. Between vacation and um, (laughs) starting homeschool. But I was like, I was thinking that in my mind when we were talking and I was like calculating how much time you're giving yourself. And I was like, that's such a Tara thing to go from like butt end of one big thing to the butt end of the other. So I wasn't even surprised, but I was like, you should have came home like Saturday, reset, got the girls like, but I didn't, not in Tara's but at the same time, the reason we're starting so early is because I knew there was going to be like days like this that were crazy. And I I knew that we were going to have days that I needed like a a cushion or like a buffer. And so that was kind of today. Like we got all their pencils out. We got their boxes out. We did a walk around the dairy. So, I mean, we did some schoolwork, but we also just like got ready. And honestly, I feel like if they were at their first day of school, really how much learning would they have done? For sure. So it's kind of like whatever. They go to one o'clock. They get early out. Exactly. On our first day. Like, I'm not giving up hope yet. I There was a moment where I was like, I'm calling to re-enroll them. <laughs> but I have moved past that and I'm starting fresh tomorrow. Oh, this is going to be great. This is like a whole new chapter to to all be obsessed yeah, with. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of content. So y'all guys stay tuned for that. Um, You had an exciting weekend. I was very jealous last night when I got home after my homeschool meltdown Um, that you took Jax to the Omaha Zoo. Yeah, we actually, Tad, Luke, me, and Jax all went down to Omaha. Tad and Luke ended up golfing in like a, a double scramble tournament together. And then I took uh, Jax to the Omaha Zoo while, while they golfed. And so it was a really good weekend. It was kind of just like a last little hurrah before we start school. Uh, one thing I will tell you about Nebraskans is you can never really trust what they say about their own state because they just, we just bleed red. We bleed Nebraska. <laughs> we breed anything that is like our state. And so like everything's the best to us in Nebraska. And so you never know if it's really the best. And that's how the Omaha Zoo has always been portrayed to me. Like 
it's the best in the world. It rivals San Diego. Like it goes back and forth with San Diego. Like it's top notch. You have to go. And I'm always like, is that like Nebraska's just loving the Nebraska zoo? Or is that really like the Omaha zoo being, you know, of utmost of, of zoos? And I have to give it to us, to our state. I think we're actually right. It is a really good zoo. It was very interactive for the youth. Like I was very impressed. They actually do have some of the largest, um, like I think Omaha Zoo has the largest indoor rainforest as well as like the largest indoor um, desert. And so there are parts of the zoo that um, are very, I think, unique and different. And Overall, for our first experience, I was very impressed. I mean, I've been to the San Diego Zoo, and it's like, I mean, for sure, like world renowned. So, um, but from your pictures, I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, Natalie wasn't lying when she said that she's heard the Omaha Zoo was good because it looked good. So, yay for Nebraska. Yeah, one point for us. Um, all right. Well, we've yammered and asked, should we move into our uh, discovery word of the week? Yeah, I saw word of the week, and I was like, mm, I should send this to Natalie, and I don't think I did. So, curious what you picked. You didn't. I actually picked one that I heard on our sister podcast, The Toast, <laughs> our unofficial sister podcast. <laughs> that they don't know we exist, but we love them. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's a sister relationship of any relationship I've ever heard of. <laughs> um, it's called affable, and it means friendly, good-natured, or easy to talk to. And I picked it because I feel like there is no bigger compliment than when someone shares us on social media and says that they feel like they're just hanging out with us and that it was like informative, but fun and warm and just fun, like, yeah, fun. And I feel like that's what affable is. So I was like, we need to channel more of our affable vibes for the podcast because that is what we're after is equal parts informative as well as entertaining. Affable. I hope we're affable today. Okay, so today's podcast, like always, is brought to you by Case IH, our amazing sponsor. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring every bring that perspective into everything that Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Visit builtbyfarmers.com, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. All right. So first up in discovering what you guys need to know in the world of ag this week, title Plenty to Build World's Largest Indoor Vertical Farming Complex. Plenty Unlimited Incorporated said Wednesday it will build the world's largest indoor vertical farming campus on 120 acres near Richmond, Virginia. The 300 million facility will grow multiple crops, including leafy greens and tomatoes, starting with a Driscoll strawberry farm in the winter of 23 to 24. The company says the project is expected to produce up to 20 million pounds produced annually and create 300 new jobs. I was really excited, actually, when we picked this article because I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, I visited an indoor farm and Daniel and I went far, far down the rabbit hole of thinking about building an indoor farm, not for leafy greens, but for food for cattle. And we were deep in this. I mean, we were so close. Like we applied for grants. It was crazy. And so I was just excited to cover this and maybe bring kind of what it was like when I visited one and just like everything we learned about it. So I am shooketh. I had no oh, idea. Really? I feel like we must not have been friends then. No idea. Mm, I think it was very early on in our, our real life friendship. Like I think I'd only attended. I just met you. So yes, that's true. But like you, I was also very excited to dive into this because um, like most things we cover on here, I feel like it's a very nuanced conversation. I feel like there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to consider. I feel like there's a lot of pros, but on the same hand, there's like questionable cons or things that like haven't come to surface yet about how it will unfold for the future of, you know, vertical farming, indoor farming. 
And yeah, we're going to deep dive at all you guys. We're going to go for a little swim. Like we're professional swimmers because I don't know. I feel like this is like trending is not the right word, but I do see this popping up everywhere right now. Like, uh, you know, quote unquote, is this kind of the future of farming? And we have not talked about it yet. So I don't know. Where do you want to start? Yeah, maybe let me give like a little bit of background, I guess, on it. Um, So it's like a climate controlled setting, pest free. It talks about using a lot less water, a lot less inputs, kind of. I say kind of a lot less inputs and gets a lot more yield per acre. So on this one, they claim that they get 350 times the yield per acre compared to traditional farming. On the flip side, the increased inputs do include building an entire building, keeping it climate controlled, which is obviously a lot of energy uh, use and like all everything that goes into the machinery and the equipment. So to give a little like insight to the one I saw, I think describing it as vertical farming is very accurate. So it was literally just, it felt very futuristic. There was a lot of colors, like the like lights were pinks and purples and just felt very futuristic, but it's basically like layers and they go up on a conveyor belt. I'm doing hand movements, but no one can see, but it goes like around in a circle and it goes up and up and up and then down and down and down. And when it's done, it like goes off the conveyor belt is the one I saw. And they can do very targeted water. Like it's really cool to see exactly what goes into like growing each of the little like boxes on the conveyor belt. Yeah. So it's called hydroponics or like can be associated with that. So if you guys hear the word hydroponics, that's what they're referring to. It's like the growing of something essentially without soil. It's like just using water. I just think it's like one of the points to it is that it's removing like the soil, the land, because we'll kind of talk about this in a minute, but I would listen to two podcasts on my drive to Omaha. Actually, they just happened to both be about vertical farming. They both just happened to be in my queue. They're from very different perspectives and they gave very different, um, what one saw as a pro one saw as a con, which I thought was very interesting to dive into. But yeah, the water, it's, it's just water and plants, which I think is crazy. They have to keep the water at a certain pH level, which I thought was really interesting. So I feel like there's like more kind of chemistry to this than maybe in other farming. I don't know if that's right, because I do feel like probably like we're not, we're ranchers, right? We're not farmers. And I feel like a true farmer would probably be like, no, we, I work with chemistry quite a bit, but I don't know, like changing. I mean, I guess you change the pH of the soil sometimes when you're working. I don't know. I just felt like you're like, they're putting in the micronutrients. They're putting in the macronutrients. Like it felt very chemistry heavy to me compared to traditional. I 100% agree. It is very a fine balance. And like, depending on how much recycling is going on, like we were looking to grow cattle feed, which is obviously a little bit different than growing a strawberry that someone's going to eat. But they were recycling some of the water. And so making sure the water didn't end up with, you know, something funky like an algae or like some like they had to be really conscientious of exactly what was going on with like not only the water pH, but like just all of the different nutrients that were interacting in there. And for us, I do feel like going back to that some things were pros and some things were cons. One of the reasons we decided ultimately not to go with it, it just felt not there yet. It was not like the inputs, the cost and everything and the output of what came out. It just didn't make sense yet. And that was obviously, again, from a cattle feed side, whereas if you're selling a strawberry, it is a very different product. But it, I think it holds true that it, it's still like very new and a lot of unknowns. And so I listened to one of the podcasts you sent me actually about it. And, um, you know, just even all the way down to the business models of how to make it work are people are trying all sorts of different things in order to make this pencil out because it's a massive, I mean, $300 million is a lot for obviously infrastructure on a farm. 
Yeah, which would be considered one of the cons, I guess, is like, you know, to start a farm, obviously land is going to be expensive, so it's still capital intensive. But, you know, you kind of go out um, and in a very basic level, right, you're like working with things you have access to, which is like seeds and soil. Not everyone is going to have like the startup capital cost to do vertical farming. So this article was talking about a vertical farm in Virginia, and it said it's going to be the world's largest one. Before that, it was actually in Dubai. And before Dubai, it was actually in Pennsylvania. So this obviously goes to show that it's like a very global idea. Um, And I also think it's very interesting of where like it is, you know, where they're popping up. We have Virginia, Pennsylvania, Dubai, like, I don't know what the common thread is, but um, I just thought it was interesting to see where like they're um, being implemented. But when you talk about the scale of them, the one in Dubai has the capacity to produce over 2 million pounds of leafy greens annually. And it was talking a lot about, again, pro versus con, that a lot of the spinach and grocery stores in Dubai are going to be imported somewhere, probably from Europe, um, maybe even the United States. And so they were talking about these vertical farms, like when you can put them in areas that are having problems with water or land problems, like some of those issues that vertical farming does solve, um, you could possibly decrease the importation of foods, which I thought was like a really interesting aspect to it. Oh, for sure. I think that is what the appeal of vertical farming is, is that you can put these centers extremely close to urban populations and grow a lot of food very close so that they're and in any climate, like you don't have to worry about the fact that onions that end up in New York City need to come from southern New Mexico or southern Texas. Like you can grow onions, I mean, in theory, uh, right there outside of like New York. And that is the huge appeal. It's interesting that it's no surprise to me that Dubai was (laughs) the largest indoor farming before this one. Um, But the scale, like you said, it was only producing 2 million pounds. I say only, that's still a lot. But this new one is 20 million. So obviously, we are really seeing like, a ramp up of scale of these. And then there are um, plenty of similar locations in California that provide kale and arugula to Whole Foods uh, in like the San Francisco, like Bay Area. And so, yeah, you're growing fruits and vegetables anywhere, anytime. That's extremely appealing. One thing I did learn about it, though, is that uh, it has limited crop varieties that you can do indoors. So you can't, we're not going to be able to like grow anything and everything. Like it will not be able to replace every single crop, which I thought was really interesting. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting about this, um, and maybe this goes a little bit more into like the two podcasts I was talking about, but one was from a Iowa, uh, it was called Clayton farms. They're out of Iowa theirs is about 2000 square feet. So they're not huge, but they're doing like a really good job of like servicing the areas, um, you know, the area they're local to, which like you said, one of the interesting thing is that you'll see these vertical farms actually closer to urban cities than you would traditionally like a normal farm, which I think is very, very interesting. Um, but they were saying like on their podcast, their call to action at the end of it was basically that they have labeled themselves um, better than organic because they said that you lose about one third of the nutrients through like food transportation because the food has been so long, you know, from when it was like grown and picked to like when it gets to the grocery store and can consume it. And so their slogan for this vertical farm was better than organic. On the flip side, the second podcast I talked to was saying how, you know, it was from actually an organic farmer standpoint, which is hilarious to me that 
that was the slogan of the first podcast, but they were very much so against vertical farming. They were saying, especially in the organic realm, that it shouldn't even be allowed in the organic because it's doing nothing for the soil, which is like a huge part of the organic project, right? Is like being better for the soil. They were also saying that uh, these or hydroponic um, organic farms are taking a lot of the like soil organic farms shares. Like it's basically being taken over. Like they use Driscoll's a lot and they gave us a ton of different examples of like some specific fruits and vegetables that like pretty much are going to be 100% grown hydroponic when it comes to organic label. It was just very interesting because they were pretty much trashing vertical farms saying that like, this is not what our future needs, like all the plastic startup costs, all the like, again, removing the soil, removing all the natural elements. And I was just like, no wonder our consumers are so confused. You know, like we have one topic here, two podcasts, um, you know, I guess differing perspectives, but both within agriculture and they both gave very contradicting views about one the same subject matter. One of the most surprising stats I found was that there are already over 2000 vertical farms in the United States, which is a lot more than I guess I would have thought. I would not have predicted that many. And then I do think as far as inputs, like it is the um, energy use that is massive on this and talking about, you know, like renewable energies and just our like, what is that called? Like our um, impact on the grid or whatever, like our pull from the grid, thinking about having a massive indoor farm, like, again, especially in California, where they already have like brownouts. Um, And so they did mention that in their San Francisco location, they're using renewable power. So a lot of like solar. And I was thinking, I feel like to make this pencil out, you would have to have some kind of like solar panels Mm -hmm. or something, because otherwise your electric bill would just be eating you alive. Um, So there's still a lot to uncover here, I feel like, is the moral of this story. Oh, a lot. I think before we end, I just want to give the laundry list of kind of what I wrote down for pros and I guess, you know, quote unquote, pros versus cons so that people have an idea of it. So you mentioned the water. They're claiming that you can use about 95% less water than is required to grow in fields, which is actually crazy considering that like water is kind of one of the main um, inputs for like vertical farming. You think you'd have to use I don't know. I just wouldn't think it'd be that much. Yeah, that was obviously our big draw for this is we wanted to use less water. And I think it has to do with the evapotranspiration rate. So if you're out in the air, air, you have the sun and the wind and all the things that are evaporating so much water and they're able to control for that. Uh, So another pro some consider is like the input side of no pesticides, no herbicides. So it's going to be grown in that really controlled environment. And then lots of times, again, even into the food waste factor, they are going to be shipped like immediately to stores. So you don't have to wash them and clean them. You don't have to transport them as far. So there was kind of like the less input food waste component to it. And then um, cons can be limited crop variety, which I already mentioned. Um, and the inputs, which we are like the energy inputs, which we've already mentioned. Cool. All right. Uh, well, I think that kind of sums it up for vertical farming for us. But before we move into our second article, you guys, we want to shout out a fellow ag podcast. It's called barn talk it was actually ran by father and son and they are hawk farmers they're out of um i always get my eye states mixed up but i think they're iowa pretty sure they're iowa they actually share online as this will do farm um so you may already be kind of familiar with them online um if you're not already listening to them on the podcast you should they um they have interesting stuff going on over there they have um you know interview episodes they have solo episodes just themselves they have q a episodes they do have like a hot topic episode which I would say is kind of like what we do on here. They touch on like hot topics in the news. They just recently did one on RFK or J. Wait, no, yeah, Robert Kennedy. J. What is this initials? <laughs> RFK. No, 
Is that right? R.K.J. Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah, Robert Kennedy Jr. R.K. Okay. Yes. R.F.K. Jr. No, it's R.F.K. Robert Franklin Jr. Kennedy. (laughs) R.F. Maddie. (laughs) (laughs) Robert Franklin Kennedy Jr. That is the word. Anyway, you guys, if you have may or may not seen that a certain someone is running as a presidential (laughs) candidate and has been kind of coming under attack for some things he's been saying about agriculture. And it's really interesting because he, um, RFJK. RFKJ. (laughs) Maddie has it in the chat. Just read it as a script. I can't see the chat. Anyway, he had a soundbite about Smithfield and with, um, Sawyer and his dad being in hogs it was really really interesting to hear them break down what he was saying and anyway their podcast is really great you should go um, go check them out if you enjoy what we talk about I think you will really really enjoy what they talk and about. I will say I don't always catch their podcast but I follow them on social and I love their short form content they do such a good job making reels and TikToks and YouTube videos out of their content I love them they're like one of my favorite follows as far as like ag podcasts on social media so you can go give them a follow too I know they're on barn talk at YouTube um, and so lots of like great ways to consume their content all right you guys moving into our second article which is definitely going to be a little bit lighter than our first and third for sure title is what is tomato girl summer Everything you should know about TikTok's juicy fashion trend. First, there was Barbiecore, then there was Coastal Cowgirl and Mermaidcore Summer. But if your style radar has room for one more trend to buzz about in the coming months, it'd have to be Tomato Girl Summer. The newest fashion craze on TikTok isn't entirely about dressing up like the seasonal fruit, although lots of red is involved. It is, however, all about embracing the vibes of a chill European summer. As Natalie has my necklace on to complete her (laughs) tomato girl outfit. I am just missing the mark on getting dressed for our uh, articles. I'm sorry. I'm actually more like in the Barbie world, I feel like right now. And now your tomato girl summer vibes. I can't believe you missed. I almost texted you and was like, you're going to wear red, right? But I thought, obviously, she's going to wear red. Duh. Duh. Tomato girl. Just like I was supposed to wear pink for Barbie. Duh. And I didn't. Um, in my defense, it was a stressful morning, as I've already alluded to. But my necklace, as soon as you came on the screen, I was like, that girl, that's the PG version <laughs> of what I was thinking, is wearing my necklace that I let her borrow. She took it from me on Sheep Trail. It looks so good, she was too. Like, can I take this home with me? And I was like, for like a month, mm. you can loan it out. But you look very tomato girl summer. I like the greens and the reds. Mm. It's great. So... Anyway, I was turned on to this uh, trend. I don't spend hardly any time on TikTok anymore. I kind of just stepped away from that platform completely. But I found it through one of my friend's email, um, her weekly email. So you guys, emails are not dead. Um, Actually, you should go sign up for ours. That's a good plug for ours. Uh, In the show notes, there is an email. Um, But I do actually enjoy emails. And um, I think really well done ones are fun. So sign up for ours. But Uh, She was talking about this trend, this tomato girl trend. And I was like, what is this? And so then I had to kind of investigate it. And it is everywhere, you guys. It is in Vogue. It is in Teen Vogue. It is all over TikTok. There's over 208 million views on TikTok and it is rising. It is crazy. It was on ABC News was covering it, I think. I don't know. Blows my mind. It is being so big and like blowing up so much that Airbnb is forecasting an uptick in travel to Italy and the Amalfi Coast in the coming year. 
that's like that. If that doesn't tell you the power of social media, like something as silly and fun as tomato girl could actually change travel plans into the future is kind of wild to me. When we were in Omaha, actually, there was a store in the mall that was called TikTok Trends, and it only sold things that were on, I'm assuming, trending on TikTok in there. It was crazy. It just reminded me, like you said, not just social media. I do feel like TikTok is kind of the driving platform right now for dictating trends and culture. And it's actually insane how powerful it is. I mean, we're sitting here talking about tomato. I was going to cover this later, but you kind of already like set me up so beautifully. I'm going to go ahead and talk about it now. It leads me a little bit, though, into our fast fashion and our little bit of consumerism. So I feel like this summer, I remember I went to Florida in April to visit my in-laws, and I was really into the coastal cowgirl. I remember sending like you and our friend Ashley like pictures of some really cute coastal cowgirl stuff I found. Then we had barbiecore. Like, I feel like barbiecore hasn't even hardly ended. Like, it just came out. And now we are already on to tomato girl. And just thinking about that, like those shops, like even, you know the targets of the world will have some like TikTok sayings and things on their t-shirts. We've talked about that. And it does make me worried like how we jump from like trend to trend to consumerism to consumerism that like we're just playing into the fast fashion world. So I very much so agree with that. The interesting thing I think about this tomato girl trend is I don't actually think it is created, right? So I saw a TikTok that was kind of poking fun of it. And they're saying that this isn't a vibe. You're actually just sharing Italian women. Like that's all (laughs) you guys are doing, you know? And so I do feel like it's actually like an established culture and actual vibe. And yes, it may lead you to like, I guess, you know, consuming or trying to buy purchasings to create that vibe. But it is interesting that I don't feel like it just like originated out of nowhere. I do think it is essentially like the Italian lifestyle that we're just now kind of like picking up on the American, like TikTok is like picking up on. I agree. And I think that that was another note I had that it was like, at least this is kind of like connecting us back to nature or a heritage, like the nature as in like, um, you know, kind of like encouraging people to garden and to grow tomatoes and like see what they can do with tomatoes and basil and like cook and like kind of, I don't know, back to like Whole Foods. And so I did love that. And then the heritage of the Italian people. Um, So if you can't do an Italian Mediterranean getaway, which is my favorite part of this entire conversation, there's other ways to do it. There is also just like the encouragement of going to like farmer's markets. Um, Like you said, a lot of it's the aesthetics, like floral maxi dresses, uh, romantic messy hair, uh, very like scented tomato candles tomato beauty products. Um, Maddie's asking, do you just wear red a lot? (laughs) She's like, I've never heard of this. I'm not cool. But it is not just red. I do think red, wearing red is part of it, but there's more to it. It's It's like a feeling, a vibe. Yeah, it's very much so to answer, yes, Maddie, like an Italian girl, like (laughs) (laughs) saying like, you're just trying, we're just trying to be Italian girls. But yeah, it is. It's like, um, you know, less, not polish isn't the right word, but like, I guess less input, like more natural, like you said, farmer's market, like flowy. Um, I don't know. We will put some stuff in maybe the discover stories of like some of the TikToks that are showing like what tomato girl vibes are. Maddie just said, oh, so like Natalie, ha ha ha, which is funny because I wanted to ask you, do you think you're a tomato girl? Mm, some 
some of it. I feel like I wear a lot of uh, flowy floral dresses as I'm sitting in my closet recording this podcast. Um, I do have a lot of things that are that vibe. Um, but I I don't know. There was pieces of it liked um, barely their makeup. Like, I don't remember the last time I wore eyeliner or um, eyeshadow and then vintage jewelry. And I do feel like I love some good. I, I mean, a lot of what I wear is turquoise, which I don't know is vintage, but it, it definitely has like an older feel to it. So I think pieces of it I embrace, but not necessarily like the full Italian vibe. I wrote down that there are probably like tomato 2.0 girls or like the ultimate vibe is like tomato 2.0. Like you have a handkerchief yes. on, like you have a basket of like fruits and vegetables. And I was like, maybe we're more like tomato 0.5 girls. Cause I kind of agree. Like there are aspects of it that like, I think I've always channeled. Um, I think my hair is one. I've always said I have Euro- very European like approach to my hair. It's like very messy. <laughs> And unbrushed. I'm like, it's very European. And it's your natural okay, color. European yes. Goes. They just walk out. They don't do their hair, which is my philosophy when it comes to my hair. But um, I think it's just like romanticizing food and like um, not nature, but slow paced living. And I am all about that. I'm tr- like on my Instagram stories right now. I'm uh, creating stories around how dirt road walks are the new hot girl walks. And I'm like, I feel like that's actually very tomato girl thing to do, right? Like dirt road walks. And so I think there are aspects that I'm like all about of this, you know, kind of like quote unquote trend. Mm -hmm. The last thing I was going to say, it is nice that it is red because um, as color, you know, house of color girls, red's the color that everyone can wear. So I was like, that's very nice of the tomato girl trend to pick a color that we can all sport and look good in, you know? (laughs) Definitely. And then I also was thinking the a lot of the fits are your style i think like the romantic what are you a romantic ingenue oh my gosh why am i totally blank yeah i think so i'm a uh, ingenue romantic yeah and i feel like that's actually tomato girl vibes like a lot of the clothing i was seeing i was like oh tara like that reminds me so i said that i think i don't know that always like i'm not wearing any print um that is picnic style like that was very popular like a print that has like what you would take to a picnic on it. But I definitely have like the flowy floral dresses, the silhouettes that are like a little bit more romantic, a little bit like, I don't know, sexier side. Um, I do feel like that is a vibe. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks for bearing through us with that, you guys. We, um, I don't know. I thought that was fun. It's lighthearted. We can't be like totally serious on this podcast all the time. And it's taking over social media. So you guys need to know about it. Okay. Okay, so before we do our third article, let's um, mention our fun giveaway. Our giveaway is every single month. So August, we're in a fairly new month. So make sure that you are following, subscribing to us, leaving us a review. We love to see those. I'm going to be sharing actually a review today that we got on Instagram stories that I really loved and appreciated. We ser- we read every single one of those reviews. So thank you for those or share us to your stories and tag us. Uh, lots of ways to enter. And we pick a winner every single month to send our favorite goodie bag too. All right, moving into our last and final article you guys need to know this week. Title, More Americans Face Possibly Life-Threatening Red Meat Allergy After Spike in Tick-Borne Illness. A tick-derived condition that creates allergic reactions to red meat has affected up to 450,000 Americans since 2010, according to estimations in two new studies from the CDC, which found that hundreds of healthcare providers have not even heard of this condition. So to start with some of the facts... That's where I want to start is with facts, because if you Google this, you can end up down facts before conspiracy theories. You can end up down some really crazy conspiracy 
theories. And when we get to that part, I will say I am like the least likely to believe a conspiracy theory. And this one has me questioning my life choices. Same. Same. Oh my gosh. Same. I'm like, this is the first time I've ever felt like I have been taken a hold of by conspiracy conspiracy theory and been like, oh my gosh. I'm also going to tie it back to some of our points about lab grown meat. So it's going to be a wild ride and we need to just hang on. This is on your hats. Hang on, people. Buckle up. Yeah. So this syndrome, as you said, affects, uh, they're assuming about a half a million people in the last 13 years, which is kind of a lot. There's disagreements over what long-term ramifications look like. The Mayo Clinic Mayo Clinic is coming out saying symptoms may lessen over time, like after a year or two. Other people are saying it's only lessening when you have the elimination diet where you are not eating red meats. Um, And I even saw dairy, like not having dairy as well because it's a a mammal protein. Um, But yeah, this alpha-gal syndrome causes an allergic reaction to red meat. It's from the Lone Star Tick. And it is from everywhere from Virginia to North Carolina to Missouri. I saw uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, New York City, lots of places that this tick has been seen and spotted. So to take that mechanism of action one step further, it is, it's alpha gal for short because it's like galactose alpha one, three galactose alpha gal. Um, and it is essentially a sugar mm-hmm, and it dots the cells of non-primate mammals. So cows, pigs, and sheep. And then when the Lone Star or other tick chomps, I mean, they are right now saying it is pretty much the Lone Star, but they can't rule out other ticks. So, you know, when the Lone Star bites down on an alpha gal mammal, the parasite ingests the molecule, carries it, and then transmits it to the next. So when it then, you know, bites a human, our body recognizes that alpha gal it doesn't essentially um it's like a form body for us and then that's when like the um allergic reaction the histamine all of that will like un- start unfolding in some people who have that like basically attack on their own m- immune system because of it so when i think i think when most of us think of tick bites we think of lyme disease um and so but there's lots of different things that you can get from ticks and the cdc recommends <laughs> i thought this was kind of funny using bug spray and uh, insecticide on your clothing to reduce tick bites like that's that's it like and they were like don't go outside you're like okay so not a lot of options for like how to avoid getting tick bites. No, it really is. Like there isn't. I mean, there are sprays you can buy that are like tick, flea, mosquito. Some of them are combined in one. Um, but yeah, there's not like a, a lot you can do. Um, diagnosis is pretty simple and straightforward. It's like a blood test and they just see if you have the anti-al- the anti-alpha-gal antibodies. Um, there are no treatments for it right now. You basically just like avoid what triggers it. So which would be like the meat or dairy or whatever put you into the reaction. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, I think, from like that aspect when you're looking at it. I think when you get into... I'm what? shaking my head. No. Do you want me to oh, start down the crazy conspiracy theory? Well, I was going to say, now is where we can start going. Like, I feel like all of that to me is like fact pretty factual and straightforward. I have one more fact that leads us into conspiracy theory territory. So alpha-gal syndrome uh, leads some people to only have GI symptoms and without any traditional allergic reaction symptoms. So like normally you'd get hives or rash. Lots of people don't have hives, rash. They don't have any like anaphylactic. They have GI. That is absolutely uncommon. They quoted it as a paradigm shift by the different like GI specialists. Never this one GI specialist 
like, I think she was from Harvard. I mean, her credentials were amazing. She has never seen an allergic reaction that only includes GI symptoms, which she mentioned is very suspicious. Yeah, it would be because histamine is usually the root cause of any sort of allergic reaction. So if you are having, quote unquote, an allergic reaction, removing histamine from it, um, it is kind of bizarre. Okay, so here is where I think things will get just a little wild because you mentioned earlier that these ticks are starting to appear everywhere, right? Like Lone Star is typically in the South, South, I don't know if it was Southwest or where, but it was a very Southern state's And now, like you said, it's popping up everywhere. And there is conspiracy behind that, that it is popping up everywhere, not because of climate change, which is what everyone is saying it is. That's what all the articles, the news article, everyone will say it's because with the warming temperatures, the ticks can migrate, yada, yada, yada. There's the theory that they are actually being released intentionally into these areas, right? Because if you're going to, which as we will get into this rabbit hole, but if you're going to create this um, for various reasons, you're going to have to like introduce the ticks. Yes. And so there is a lot of conspiracy theories that there are some people out there <laughs> who don't want to see the meat. It may or may not be Bill Gates who doesn't want to say by people, they mean Bill Gates, <laughs> Bill and Melinda Gates. Poor Melinda gets tacked into all of this now. And she's probably like, I, I am not with him. She's like, I literally divorced him. Like I separated myself from him. Can I just be separate? Um, no. So people are saying that like he created this tick and there are some crazy things of different tick research he's doing about like bovine um, that it would reduce, but it would reduce different diseases in bovine tick bites. I don't, did I say that right? Okay. But then they're like, why would he care about saving cattle when he doesn't want to see meat? Which is interesting because we've covered Bill Gates on this podcast a lot in different research he's done for cattle. So fun fact, the place that I was at in California, he owns a house on the beach there. So I definitely (laughs) took pictures of his house, scoped him out, tried to find him for you guys to ask him these questions, see if this conspiracy was right. Obviously, he was... He was not there. I'm sorry. You guys, the efforts we put in behind (laughs) the scenes of Discover Ag. It's astounding, truly. Um, But yeah, okay, let's dive into this tick because he is doing, people keep calling it genetically modified ticks, genetically modified mosquitoes. And I don't think that is the right verbiage, but he's creating, manufacturing, whatever. GM. A tick and mosquitoes. He's already been in the news for like work he's done with mosquitoes. Diving into this tick though. So there's this company called Oxitec, O-X-I-T-E-C. It is on the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation website. If you Google it, it pops up. It's under ag development, which I think is interesting. And I keep asking myself, is Bill Gates messing, not messing, investing in food and farming and agriculture because he is smart and knows that that is something we will always need that is human dependent. So it's like a safe bet with your money, right? Or is it because of this conspiracy stuff where he, you know, needs to be into the food system to control and tweak it. But anyway, there's this ag development Oxitec. So what their goal of their company is, and you guys can find this, you can Google this, it is all out there. This is not conspiratory, this company, it is factual. It's tying the pieces together that fall under the conspiracy. But basically what they're doing is there's this Asian blue tick and it feeds on livestock animals. It's very detrimental. It transports a bunch of destructive diseases. It causes economic losses. It's found in like Asia, Africa, South America, and it's really spreading at, again, spreading at an alarming rate. 
causing a lot of resistances and problems. And so what this Oxitec company is trying to do is they're going to create this tick that um, they're calling it friendly arthropods. That's what they trademarked it as, friendly arthropods. And basically what they're doing is they're putting this self-limiting gene into this Oxitec tick that through the male, um, like the male can't pass it on. And so through genetic breeding, they would eventually like wipe out this problem tick parasite thing. And so the question you said is everyone is like, well, why when Bill Gates has been like repetitively quoted as saying like third world companies or not third world companies, but countries, especially first world countries should be going to synthetic meat. We shouldn't be eating meat. We need to get rid of cows. They're destructive for the planet. Why does he care so much about saving the cows from this like destructive tick? They're like, it just doesn't make sense. So that's like the beginning of it is like, why does he care so much about saving cows when he, you would think from like outside views, hates cows? On the flip side, I don't know where you're headed next. So I don't know if I should let you keep going down your rabbit hole. If I should take us down to maybe a different rabbit hole. Nope, I have more threads to weave. This is a full-on basket, you guys. Okay, we're we're making a tapestry. We are walking down the uh, Sistine Chapel, and we got a big old tapestry on the wall, okay? Because it goes like five layers deeper, and it's all around Melinda and Bill Gates, and it all ties back to itself. It is honestly crazy. When I say that this is the first time I've ever read some stuff where I'm like, is this true? Like, I've never come across a conspiracy theory where I'm like, I think there's truth to this, but this is really alarming. So now there's this company called Revacor. Oh, okay. This is where I was going. Uh, Can I take this one for a minute? Sure. Yep. Go ahead. So in December of 2020, which I feel like the fact that it was 2020 and we're now talking about the Lone Star Tick in 2023 is crazy, but that's different. The FDA approved the first of its kind intentional genomic altered line of domestic pigs referred to as gall safe pigs. And what those are is pigs that you can eat even if you've been bitten by the Lone Star Tick because it changes the sugar process of how you digest it. It removes that sugar so that you no longer have an allergic reaction, the alpha gall reaction to this. So now there is a genetically altered pig that you can buy to solve this problem. It's funny that you say gall and I say gal. I was always wondering which it is. Alpha gal, alpha (laughs) gall. I'm not sure. I really went back and forth on how to say it on the podcast today. So to go one layer deeper, though, this Revivacore, this company you're talking about, which has, as you said, in 2020, made the gal safe pig so that we can all eat it, even if we have the bite from the tick. They started out with cloning. And the whole intention of their company, if you go to their website, is to provide organs from gene-edited pigs to overcome the critical shortage of human organs for transplant. On the surface level from that, from my medicine background, my pharmacy background, I'm very okay with that. I'm like, that makes sense. There are pigs in heart transplants is a huge thing. There's a lot of actually animal organs that go into human. So it would make sense to me that if there is this shortage, which I don't know that for sure or not, I could imagine there is. But if there is or isn't, it would make sense that you would maybe want to like get into the cloning business to solve that shortage. It, that absolutely makes sense to me. So in 1996, this Revivacore, which this is on their website, you guys can see actually the timeline. They got involved with the Roslyn Institute and they were the ones that cloned Dolly the sheep. We all know about Dolly the sheep. Yep. They went to 2000. They cloned the first pig. 2011 is when they established the first alpha gal knockout pig. 
And then 2022 was when they got it approved to eat. And so there enters the thread of thought where people are like, why did this company who just cared about cloning for organs, why are they so hyper fixated on producing like alpha gal seems very niche down, right? So why are they focused on fixing that alpha gal problem where you creating a clone that you could eat it? Bill and Melinda Gates invested into this. They have ties of money into the Roslyn Institute, um, which further ties into them, the Roslyn Institute investigating into an antibody about these trip, tripe, tripanosomes. I don't know. It's very hard to say. <laughs> it comes all for a circle because basically the Roslyn Institute was investigating something that only parasites and cows can kill. And that would wipe out the alpha. It's this whole crazy circle, you guys. And truly, Belinda and Mills money is all over it. And I just don't know if it's because they are smart enough to know that like futures and food and money is in food, or if it really is because there is like crazy stuff going on behind the scenes. I had to stop researching because I was like, I don't think I want to know more about what's this, going honestly, on actually. anymore. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up down some crazy rabbit holes about different um, like biologists that do cloning that then are cloning. They went from cloning for medical purposes, exactly what you said, to cloning for lab grown meat. Because that is what they're trying to do is clone cells to grow lab grown meat. So what is the cell of a filet? Let's clone that and grow that. It really, I don't know. I feel like you summed it up good, but it really is crazy. All of the intricate webs <laughs> that have been woven in this situation. And I, as I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I will say it does make me very concerned that a tick that makes you allergic to me is on the rise. And there is a company that their goal is to profit off of a patented technology that would make gall gal safe pigs. That just even that, if you take everything else and say, whatever, I don't, I don't care about all the other research that's going on with the uh, Bill and Melinda Foundation. If you just take that, that's really scary in itself that like people are patenting food. It goes back to the lab grown, like patenting food that they would have control over what can be produced and what can't. And if we are all allergic to red meat and the only meat we can eat is this product, this bioengineered product feels very concerning. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if I have like articulate thoughts I can sum up on all of this. I feel like this was actually my first dive into this. I have seen it in news on other people's Instagram stories, like a lot like this alpha gal idea. I've seen reels on it and I've just never like, I guess, paid attention to it. I've really, truly never even looked into what it was. I just always saw the headline and then moved on. And so I feel like I still have a lot of like processing around this whole area. I do think, like you said, it's very, very alarming that even at the beginning stages of this, we have a tick, whether manufactured or not, um, causes allergies in red meat. Like that in and of itself is a problem before we even get to like the rest of the dominoes falling down. One of my, like when I was really doing a lot of the debunking videos, one that I was doing was a um, like food scientist who was talking and slash like climate activist. I don't think they were a climate scientist, climate activist. They were talking about how people are not going to stop eating meat. And he mentioned the Lone Star Tick and was like, well, we can make them stop eating meat. And just the entire wording, how it was presented really, set off like red flags. And so then going into this article, it just it I feel like I ended up down some crazy rabbit holes back then. And now it like brought that all back up and even like a layer deeper. So I agree. I don't know that I have a lot more to add besides there feels like there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. More than meets I, the eye, maybe. Or maybe it so, is meeting the eye and we're like, yeah, we see you 
and we're concerned. Pun intended with meets the eye. Ooh. (laughs) We're so good. Um, So I guess moral of the story is don't get bit by a tick. Yeah. Use that insecticide as the CDC said. I'm like in this organic driven world and they're like spray yourself with insecticide like I'm just like reading this through the lens of like someone who only shops organic and they're like I do not want to spray myself with insecticide like oh man all right well I guess on that note you guys that's all we have prepared this week um it was a fun one it was very different from tomato girl to We've this. we've been around the world. We were in Italy, Dubai, back to Pennsylvania. It's it's yeah. been a heck of a heck of a ride. Future of food is crazy though, you guys. That's why we got to pay attention to it. So, anyway, thank you so much for tuning in to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We will see you guys next week. 